Hello, and welcome to Political Traction. Poll after poll shows a broad consensus across the political spectrum that the most pressing domestic issue in Canada is the cost and availability of housing. All levels of government have acknowledged the issue that more and more people are calling a crisis, but policy set at the municipal level determines whether housing gets built or doesn't. Last week, Toronto City Council overwhelmingly adopted a housing plan to build more housing that has been described as generational by supporters and radical by detractors. How will the city turn legislation into shovels in ground, and what can other cities learn? I'm Adam Owen, joined today by Brad Bradford, a Toronto City Councillor and Chair of the City's Planning and Housing Committee. Brad has been a vocal supporter of new housing initiatives and has frequently stood down constituent opposition to building more units. He spoke with me about what this new housing plan really means. This is Political Traction. So Brad, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here with you, Adam. Hey, I was uh, I was at your riding last night. I, uh, I I'm up in East York, but I went down to uh, to history uh, to see uh, see the Always Show. Uh, what a great venue! What a great uh, thing that you have in your in your riding. You know what? Live music across uh, Toronto is coming back post pandemic, and historic investments in a place like history make a big difference. Having a venue like that in that sort of 21, 2200 person capacity means we get great artists. It's uh, it's a spectacular venue. Live Nation does a top shop job of putting on performances. And so uh, I've been in the building a few times and had some fun there myself. So I'm glad you were checking it out. Yeah. Is, is there anything coming up that you're uh, that you're looking forward to checking out? You know what? I, we actually have a site visit with them, uh, I think, in the next week or two, not for music, more for transportation, sort of some of the challenges there and just get the flow around the building a little bit better. So a lot of it is kind of work related. Um, I saw the beaches there. They played a couple of sh- sold out shows, uh, obviously, um, you know, musicians from the neighborhood. So that was pretty yeah. special. And uh, just a lot of good energy, a lot of good vibes. And uh, the staff team's great. And you know what? That location... Uh, I'm going to be a bit of a homer here, but it is really kind of a new gateway to the beach right at that location there of Kingston and Queen. Uh, and you always know when there's a show going on because the local yeah. restaurants and bars are packed. And so that's been great for local businesses. And uh, I think for the most part, everybody's really excited to have them in the neighborhood. Oh, that's great. Well, um, enough, uh, enough uh, lo- local talk. Uh, we're, we're going to talk, we're, we're here to talk about the housing, uh, the housing plan that, uh, that Mayor Tory um, and yourself, the person who seconded that, uh, that plan um, got passed uh, on Wednesday, I believe. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that plan and what aspects of it you're looking forward to the most? Yeah, I mean, this plan in in a sense has really been 20 years in the making, right? Uh, the city kind of came together at amalgamation, uh, city planning, put together our, our original official plan. You could call that sort of the motherhood guiding doc- document for, for growth in the city. And if you reflect on where we've, where we've come from and where we've been and where we need to go over the next 20 years, um, certainly the status quo is no longer working. We are in a housing crisis. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a 1986 model. I'm 36 years old. And I'm sure you talk to a few folks and friends. Um, people are having a really hard time finding affordable, attainable housing here in the city of Toronto. So this plan assertively responds to that. Uh, you know, the mayor put pen to paper on the 2023 housing action plan. And, you know, all of the the sort of sacrosanct planning notions, the way that we have done it before, our approach to responding to growth and development, 
that is all changing. So folks can expect to see, you know, up zoning as of right on our main streets, on our avenues across the board. You can expect to see multiplexes, gentle density, duplexes, triplexes, quads, walk-up apartments coming to neighborhoods across the city. Uh, those exist in many places like the beaches, like parts of East York. But at the same time, there are vast swaths of this city where the only thing you can build is a single detached house. Uh, and that needs to change. So those things are coming. And then we also did something, uh, you know, that's been many years in the making as well, which was legalizing rooming houses or multi-tenant housing. You know, when we talk about housing, it really is a continuum of affordability across the housing spectrum and rooming houses um, are really one of the first rungs on the ladder of, of finding stability here in the city, a roof over your head, the dignity of a front door. Um, and, and those have been illegal in huge parts of the city for a really long time. We have now legalized those. There will be a pathway to conformity. So, you know, there's more than 15 different points in this plan. Um, some of them are, are really detailed. Some of them are more high level. But the point is we are taking serious action on housing because this is going to be the term where we move forward with that agenda uh, and make sure that we get it done. Yeah, a lot of, um, well, the majority, and there hasn't been a ton, uh, broadly, almost every op-ed I've read about this piece, uh, uh, housing experts are broadly supportive of this. The only criticisms that I've seen are people who say that it doesn't go far enough, which is, you know, if you if you have either that to take or people who say, I don't like it at all, like I, I would say, I would want to hear that it's not going far enough because it means that you're moving in the right direction, at least. Um, the people who say that there are you know, it, it it doesn't really address supportive housing. It seems like they're missing the point on on the rooming houses issue because that that is one of the main drivers, as I understand it, that's driving people into into shelters and supportive housing is the, is the lack of rooming houses. Well, that's right. And and let's be very clear: rooming houses exist across the entirety of the city of Toronto. And for so many years, uh, particularly in parts of Scarborough, North York, Etobicoke, it's almost been viewed as the third rail of politics. Let's put our head in the sand and pretend that they don't exist. Well, there's a number of problems with that. First and foremost, they do exist. Uh, but second of all, uh, you know, it really jeopardizes the safety for those tenants, for those renters, because you know, we don't have a regulatory regime in place to enforce them. It's also right. not great for neighbors when you've got a bad landlord and, and you know, property maintenance, they're not taking care of it. Um, again, we don't have a, a solid regulatory regime around that. We can't enforce on it. Well, that's like that, um, that Toronto Life, uh, I think it was Toronto Life article from a few months ago about that, uh, that one scammer who had run those, uh, those illegal rooming houses uh, all across the city for years and, and was just scamming people. I, would this legislation uh, enable you to put a stop to, to stuff like that? I hadn't read that article, but effectively, you know, there was really only one of two outcomes with a uh, illegal rooming house. And, and one was perhaps, you know, dissatisfying circumstances or conditions for the tenants, for the adjacent neighbors, not good, you know, and if Toronto Fire came in and, and did some sort of an inspection and, uh, you know, it wasn't up to code, you shut it down. And so then all of a sudden those tenants are thrust out of that really affordable housing uh, housing environment and you know often they would end up uh, experiencing homelessness so what we needed to do was not ignore the problem but roll up our sleeves tackle it head on and by providing a pathway to compliance by providing the resources on our end from a bylaw perspective to do the enforcement um, we can bring these things up to code 
we can create safer spaces for those tenants. We can get better performing buildings. We can have, you know, uh, better fits within the neighborhood, address the concerns that, that some folks have around them and create a better outcome for everybody. And, and this was a big step for this council. Uh, it actually took a lot of the, the sort of focus on the housing plan um, was this rooming house component because it has just been so contentious for so long. But, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but at the end of the day, this will save lives for people. Um, and, uh, you know, for those who are often most vulnerable, we are creating better, safer living conditions. And we're also, you know, signaling here that these buildings are an important part of our housing mix in this city. It's an important part of our plan for affordability. And, uh, you know, we're going to create better conditions for, for neighbors and for the folks who are living in the building. Now, the, the NIMBY lobby is really loud across, well, all of Canada, but especially in Toronto. And, and your ward in particular has uh, a, a particularly, I'd, I'd say, agitated subset of folks who are really heavily invested in ensuring that the status quo does stay the same and that, and that more housing is not built. When you were uh, canvassing uh, in the recent election, uh, what were you hearing at the doors? It's interesting because, you know, leadership is about managing change and change is hard. And, and the joke is always the best way to get reelected is to do nothing at all. Uh, that has not been my approach over the first uh, first four years. And and so admittedly, if you go into my ward, you could probably find a bunch of folks that don't like me. Uh, and, and, you know, that's OK, too, because I'm only in this position for a limited amount of time and you got to take advantage of every day and every opportunity that you have. I think the biggest issue in front of us right now is that generational challenge of housing. And so I was very clear with folks about my view on that. And there were also a couple proof points that we could uh, kind of point to uh, from the previous term that were really sort of... Um, tough processes to bring forward more housing, whether that was, you know, um, the supportive housing up near San Wablo Park, uh, sort of Twitter famous as the parking lot that that was the heart of the community, <laughs> or, my, or my affordable housing site down on Queen Street. It's a housing now project, which was, you know, quote, Councillor Bradford skyscraper in the beach, uh, or some of the indigenous housing that we did on Coxwell and Kingston. Um, you know, I, I, I've taken it on the chin in some respects. But I think fundamentally, that goes back to this very human tendency to not want to rock the boat and folks know what they like and they fear the unknown. And so when we get into the conversation of housing, uh, I think the housing crisis is now universally recognized because it's so close to us. You know, it's funny, like you go back even a decade ago, housing was not a top of fold issue for people. Um, there was a lot of middle-class housing. You could have a decent job here in Toronto and you could still get by. I remember the first apartment I rented uh, in the early 2010s, I guess. And it was at Young and St. Clair. I think it was like 1200 bucks a month or something for 600 square feet. <laughs> and I made, I don't know, maybe... 40 grand a year or something. And so it was still expensive in that context, but like you could do it. But now like those options are actually far and few between. So you can make a decent income. You know, you could be a TTC bus driver. You could be a nurse. Um, you know, you could be a mechanic. You could be a med school student. And it is very challenging for those, you know, if you want to call it workforce housing, middle-class housing, that is less and less available and it's harder and harder to find. So back to your question about the campaign, when you go to the doors, you can have a conversation with anybody anywhere about the challenges of housing. 
where there isn't necessarily universal agreement is what the solution is. People understand we need more supply. People understand that we need more affordability. Uh, there's just not necessarily a consensus of where that goes and what it looks like. And I think that's where uh, it gets a little contentious. Well, you're also you're also talking about financialization with uh, with with people. And when when you go implicitly when you talk about building more housing, especially in in a person's neighborhood, you're implicitly saying. I want you to take a hit on the value of your house. Uh, maybe that's how people how people respond to it. And sometimes, you know, they don't come out and say that explicitly. But there are a lot of, you know, there's a, there's a class of people in the city who actually benefit from the housing crisis. They would not call it a housing crisis. They would call it a a, a boom for their for, for their net worth. Yeah, it's interesting that dynamic. You're definitely right. Like, you know. Before I actually got involved in politics, I worked in the chief planner's office. So I'm an urban planner by training, and I've done more than my fair share of community meetings in the bottom of uh, church basements. Um, and definitely one of the sort of things that that comes out is, uh, oh, but my property values. Well, I think you would, you know, whether this is good or bad, I think you would have a hard time pointing to where, you know, a, a development comes forward and they invest tens of million dollars in, in the neighborhood and improve the public realm. And maybe there's new park space and maybe there was a Section 37 agreement to support a community center where property values actually went down as a result of that. But more fundamentally, I would say one of the best things about Toronto is the diversity, is the vibrancy. And what supports that, of course, is more people. We get a better public realm. We get better local businesses. We we have fantastic uh, restaurants and bars to spend time. That dynamic environment that you get in a city comes with people. You, right. you can't have that dynamicism without people. Well, there's and this so, assumption that somebody's going to ride the go train for for two hours to come into the city for the 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 honor of waitressing or bartending at at a, at a restaurant uh, for the same amount of money that they could make in in the uh, outer suburbs, and that that well, and just doesn't make sense. And that's, of course, the problem, because any reasonable person is going to, you know, put that through the lens of their time, they're going to put that through the lens of their economic circumstances, and they're going to take a pass on it. And, and that is why the risk here in Toronto, if we do not make these substantive changes today, we run the risk of going the way of the, you know, many big US cities where you have a hyper concentration of extreme wealth, and you have a hyper concentration of extreme poverty, and the core is hollowed out, there is very little in the middle. And so that's not the type of city I want to live in. And that's why, you know, for a long time, ragging the puck on this, the delay, the opposition, the grandstanding, absent action, it will no longer suffice. We have to move this stuff forward now. Uh, it will be controversial. It will be challenging. Um, and folks, again, will be upset because of the degree of change as it's going to come forward. But you can't sit there and tell me that, everything is fine. You can't say on one hand, we have a housing crisis and an affordability crisis, and then say the way out of this is to continue doing what hasn't worked over the past 20 years. That just doesn't compute. And so, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, that waiter or bartender or waitress or someone working at history uh, or somebody working at the library or somebody working at the schools, like that they still have a pathway to affordable and attainable housing in the city. And one of the ways that we're gonna do that is by increasing the supply and the diversity and the type of housing options in different neighborhoods across all 640 square kilometers of this big city. At the municipal level, 
the zoning and the regulatory framework is really the only thing that we have, as far as I understand, correct me if I'm wrong, is that it, that's the limit of our ability to solve, solve the problem. But if we want to build 285,000 homes over the next 10 years in, in, in Toronto, it's going to take labor, it's going to take materials, it's going to take a lot of uh, policy at other levels of government, at the, the provincial and the federal level. What do you need from those levels of, of government to, to make this work? Well, it's uh, it's a long list. It's a long list, and you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, we can approve land, we can upzone, we can streamline our processes, we can take some of the politics out to make it easier to get things done faster. All of that is true, and I think local governments have to have some humility. Toronto certainly included in the fact that we have been obstructionists. We have been part of the challenge of bringing units and supply to market. So let's start and acknowledge that and also acknowledge that it's going to be different going forward. And we're here to do that. But when you look at the, uh, some of the changes that the provincial government is doing, when you look at some of the supports that are available by the federal government, um, more needs to happen to enable that level of affordability that isn't just going to come from a supply side solution. And uh, I, I think as municipalities grapple with some of the changes that have come out of the provincial regulations and, and new bills, whether that's Bill 109, which requires approvals to be done in 90 days, or we remit the planning application fees, or that is Bill 23 that really scopes the, um, the extent of which development charges, what we use to pay for the infrastructure associated with growth, what that can be spent on, it leaves us with this this gap in some of our funding streams to be able to pay for the new infrastructure, whether that's transit or libraries or even something basic like uh, sewers and sanitary to support the growth. And so, you know, whether they want to make us whole through transfers or whether we want to have conversations about new funding tools, however we want to do it, to support the growth, there will be significant investment needed from other levels of government or new revenue tools to do that. And the other big thing is, you know, the federal government will make policies and decisions around, you know, immigration. And uh, obviously, Toronto is a most diverse city in the world. 50% of our residents were, in fact, not born in this country. And, and again, that is what makes Toronto really sing. But when you make a decision, you know, something like 500,000 new immigrants coming to Toronto, of which 60% are going to settle in the GTA, of which the majority of those will settle in Toronto, you know, that puts a lot of pressure on our housing market. And it doesn't make it easier for us to deliver more housing for the people who are here today, recognizing that there's a lot more coming tomorrow. So those decisions cannot be made in a silo. And we need to have much better coordination, cooperation between levels of government about, you know, what the federal government is doing, what the downstream impacts are for the province, and ultimately the municipalities who are tasked with delivering all of, all of this. Lastly, I will say, you know, we can zone and approve tens of thousands of units. And in fact, we do do that, uh, but it doesn't necessarily translate into new housing. And there is a big disconnect, uh, I think, between the industry and the public. There's actually a lot of housing that gets approved we don't necessarily see the housing get built. And so let's also understand that when it comes to immigration, the point system, who's coming to this country, um, we should be looking for people who have the skilled trades and can get on the tools right away and help us build because there is a huge labor shortage um, you know, right now in terms of existing people who have the skill set ready to build the housing. 
I think that we should be looking to bring folks in, uh, you know, from other countries that could help with that. And the provincial government, to their credit, has, you know, really made some significant investments in training and trades promotion. Uh, and we will see those people coming who are ready to start getting on the tools to build the housing. But obviously, that takes a few years to work its way through the system. So all of that is to say, housing is a very complicated problem. And anybody that suggests to you that it's, uh, you know, it's simple is probably being dishonest. But just because it's hard doesn't mean we we ought not to solve it. We just have to work together to uh, to get these things moving forward. That's great. I just have one one last question. Now, now Toronto has uh, going back going back to the old, old city, um, always been on the front end on the on the the bleeding edge of new types of housing. I mean, going back to Regent Park uh, being one of the first uh, public uh, uh, public housing developments in the in the country. Don Mills in the 50s being one of the first, the, the, I think the first planned suburb uh, in, in in Canada. What about this plan? What's the what what's the 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 thing that excites you the most about about a new type of housing that we're going to see that we're going to get to see built? Well, I think that there are folks out there like uh, Nama Blonder, an architect, and you know, urban designer, uh, urbanist who often will put stuff out there on, on the internet and in her blog posts and social media that says, Oh, look at how cool this is. You wouldn't be able to build this in Toronto. <laughs> um, and, you know, we all get beat up on online for that. And, and I think some of the criticism is valid, but really what we are trying to do right now, I'm getting around the table with different folks from the not-for-profit sector, um, people in the industry, people who actually build housing. And we're having these discussions. What are the big, biggest challenges to unlocking you know, more creative types of solutions, whether that's building materials, building techniques, uh, or even the, the, the form and fit of these buildings. And what you're going to see coming forward is, is policy that responds in a more flexible way. It, we need to shift from being overly prescriptive and more focused, more focused on outcomes. I think bureaucracy writ large is very good at repeating the same thing over and over. And in fact, the system is set up to do that. But what it doesn't do particularly well is innovate. So we have to, you know, as a city and as folks who are engaged in city building, recognize that things need to change on a go forward basis because uh, the solutions to our problems are, are not currently on the table. So whether that's looking at our, our mid-rise guidelines on our avenues and our main streets, whether that's having conversations about, you know, what really is the priority? Is the priority making sure that there's never a shadow on a park? Is there a priority to make sure that, you know, we're going to have um, sort of 1970s or 1980s setbacks? Um, or are we recognizing that the city is changing and will our new policy and zoning regime reflect the change that's needed so that we can provide more housing for more people. I think that's really exciting. And, and I also think if you look at the type of development we've seen in Toronto over the past 20 years, you see primarily two forms. You see the, the single detached ground-oriented housing that is reflected in so many parts of the pre-amalgamated city. And then you see really tall towers. What we don't see is very much of anything in between. So we have to go back and say, all right, we wanted to be a mid-rise city. We wanted to see the sort of six, seven, eight, ten stories on our avenues. Why hasn't that been built? Okay, let's go talk to the people who build the housing and they can tell us, 
here are the challenges with your policy, and this is why it doesn't get built. We're going to fix that. And then we're going to go into the neighborhoods, and you're going to start to see the type of gentle density that you find in the beaches, that you find in the annex, that you find in some of the most desirable neighborhoods that are interesting that you want to spend time in. And we're going to bring that to other parts of the city where it doesn't currently exist. That will be historic. That will be a significant change in a city like Toronto of our size and our scale that will really make a difference in the long run. And, you know, gradually and incrementally, slowly but surely, but surely transform our neighborhoods. Well, Brad, your work is cut out for you now that the plan has passed. Uh, We wish you all the best. Uh, Thanks for joining us today. It's been a slice, Adam. Thanks very much. Political Traction is powered by Navigator, Canada's leading high-stakes public affairs firm. Our show was edited by Holden Wine and produced by Thomas Ashcroft, Matthew Barnes, Jeff Costin, Zeus Eden, and Jenny McElwain. I'm your host, Adam Owen. We'll see you next time.